don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 46 and today we are talking about Parasite from last year directed by Bong Joon-ho. Recently won Best Picture at the Academy Awards, uh, becoming the first non-English film to do so. And we've talked a lot about Bong Joon-ho in the past. We did the uh, auteur theory episode about him, so we're we're no stranger uh, to his work. But this, I, I think we would agree, is probably... Well, not probably, I would say definitely is his, his best movie, his strongest movie in a lot of ways, but it, it still holds all the same sort of DNA and characteristics that you would expect from one of, one of Bong's movies. Yeah, this, this movie, I mean, his previous movies that we talked about, Snowpiercer and Okja, are really good. They're, they're very good movies, and this movie is better. <laughs> yes. uh, it's, it's like I was saying earlier, it's like, you watch Snowpiercer and it's like, Oh, the guy who made Snowpiercer like grew up and made this movie because there's a lot of similar themes, but the, the writing's just, um, uh, just on point And the, uh, the way the story is told, you know, it's one thing to come up with a sort of clever story, but to, uh, to actually get it down on film in such a suspenseful and compelling way is just, you know, it's it's the best picture of the year of last year. Oh yeah, and and I'm glad you you brought up the uh, you know creating a compelling kind of quirky story, which you know definitely did here. Uh, and he, he co-wrote it. And I have let me shout out to the other person who also won the Oscar for best original screenplay, um, which was Bong Joon Ho and Han Jin Wan. So those were the the two writers. But yeah, this was a, a a really unique kind of singular story that I, you know I've never seen anything like this before. Um, but at the same time, I don't want that to sort of overshadow the strength of the writing itself, in, in specifically in like the dialogue and stuff like that. Because I don't know, you probably didn't watch the Oscar ceremony. I don't know if you did or not. I did not. Well, you know they do the when they announce the nominees or when they're reading them off, they like show the little clip. And mm-hmm. when they do do it for the screenplay, they'll show the dialogue or whatever, like at the mm-hmm. bottom of the screen. And so they're going through all the films. And when they get to Parasite, they chose a scene that had no dialogue. It's the scene where. Um, oh, well, you can't make people read. It, yeah, exactly. And it, it was the scene where the um, uh, moon, moon Guang, I think, like the old housekeeper is holding the mm-hmm. phone and they like rush her and they're fighting over the cell phone. It was that scene, and I was like, "That's weird. Why would they pick that?" And then it won <laughs> the the Oscar. Uh, <laughs> but rewatching this, I was just kind of like, because the first time I watched it, I was trying to absorb everything. But now, in the second time, I was just kind of looking and for things that I hadn't really noticed. And I really just can't express enough how much I love the scene where they're sitting around the the Kims are sitting around in the living room getting drunk together, <laughs> and there, there's just this part where. Um, they're saying they're talking about how the rich people are rich, but they're still nice and all that sort of stuff. And at one point, I think the father says, you know, the, the rich people, they have no creases on them. And, and the mother's like, well, yeah, <laughs> money, money, irons, iron. yeah, yeah. money irons it out. And this is just such a cool, 
don't know. It's just a really well written that whole scene, the whole movie, but that scene specifically. Yeah, she says. Uh, she the father says, uh, you know, she's so rich. Talking about the the wife, Miss Park. Uh, she's so rich, and yet she's so nice. And the mother, uh, Mrs. Kim, says, "Yeah, if I if I had all this money, I'd be nice too." And then, like five seconds later, you see her like shove the dog back. <laughs> <You> <laughs> she like, kicks it away. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't know. It kind of gets to that whole the whole idea that goes throughout the whole film that being able to just relax or to sort of be nice or to do any of these sort of positive things um, is kind of at the control of how much money you have and how much sort of power and status within the society. So in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the Kims don't really have the luxury of being so nice or so <laughs> polite or whatever. Mm. Um, there's no, the film doesn't really do any of that classic thing where they show like the nobility of the poor or whatever. That's not a thing that happens in the film. It's, uh, you know, a struggling and sort of grifting to survive. And, and what's so, uh, brilliant that, that, that is not, you know, part of good writing is, is what they don't say. Um, because when you watch this movie, at, at least when I watch this movie, I think, okay, why don't the Kims and, you know, the, the former housekeeper and her husband, if they were to just strike a deal, they could all live here. You yeah. know, they could all sort of, uh, siphon the, the, uh, or, you know, sort of live off the parks and it would be fine. But he's, you know, it seems like Bong is making the point that somehow poor people are divided and and feel like they have to fight each other for the exclusive uh you know uh, access to this lifestyle uh, and so it, it's sort of brilliantly illogical in that way because all they'd have to do is say hey let's you know let's let's work something out yeah and they but could they, have even made it never money. crosses their mind and they could have even made you know extra money because the old housekeeper was willing to pay them mm-hmm. um but yeah, that that's the part of the film that just sort of that seems to be kind of the original sin of the Kims kind of is that they turn down that deal and instead they're just going to, you know, they want these people out of the way so they don't have to worry about it. Um, they get in, in a way they're they're greedy. Yeah. And so they're they're, you know, they suffer from the same vice that allows the parks to be, you know, obscenely wealthy. But maybe my favorite aspect is, and I knew this was going to be the case throughout the whole film, is how ignorant the parks remain throughout the whole film. Yes. Even, even after you know the shit hits the fan and and the husband gets murdered, and uh, easily my favorite part is when the little boy, the little uh, uh, in the Park family, mm-hmm. who we know has seen a ghost, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know who's not a ghost sees the ghost at the end and just like faints. <laughs> I laughed out loud when that happened. Yeah. Um, uh, the song or da song. How, how yeah. Do you say da song. Uh, um, anyway, the, the fact that the, the rich people, even after all this stuff happens, have no clue what has happened is, is perfect. And they can just chalk it up to some sort of, 
you know, crazy, unfortunate event and they have no idea what role they play in it. (laughs) To them, they're just like, you know, they've been senselessly attacked. Exactly. And and it's, it's a type of thing you, you would, you can just sort of imagine the, the, a sort of analog in real life of some crazy news story and the way we don't want to attribute crime to some sort of, you know, culture of inequality. It's just like, Oh, that was a crazy person who did that. Let's, you know, let's go about our, our merry way. Um, but there, there's reasons things happen. And, and it seems like Bong is sort of saying like the way the news covers it and the way, you know, a sort of insulated, uh, enclave of society experiences, experiences these things is, is done so out of ignorance. They just have no fucking clue what sort of space they actually occupy. Yeah. And, 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 and it li- literally like they don't know that their house has this, uh, uh, basement, you know? Yeah. And, you know, neither does the next family that moves in. It kind of mm-hmm. remains the secret only known. It's sort of like only known by those that are kind of poorer, poorer in the film, but also like those that remember the history of, of South Korea and like the hardship of the history of South Korea. That's kind of, you know, it's a bomb shelter because of fear of the Northern strike. And there's all this stuff in the film with Morse code where basement dad, I, this is what, what I've been calling him since I saw the movie the first time, um, you know, weird basement husband um, says, well, you know, a, a man of your age should know it. Meaning like when you were a kid, you were trained in this because it was part of the right. kind of culture. Right. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned the seeing the ghost because uh, <laughs> like the, when, when the mother is telling that story to, you know, Jessica um, and you get the flashback and he's sitting on the floor eating the cake and then he looks over to the stairs and he just sees like the basement husband's head Eyeballs, like rise up. Yeah. And it's like, it's incredibly creepy and like scary looking. Um, but just how the sort of this person who has sort of become this subterranean creature because they can't afford housing. Right. And it's just sort of like becomes this, you know, weird demonic looking thing. And then also along those same lines, I don't know if you noticed there's a couple of scenes. This happens where people go upstairs in a really weird way. Like, I don't think, I don't think I noticed it cut. It's a couple of times where you see people going upstairs on all fours. And the first time, you know, like crawling like a dog or something like running up the stairs. Um, The first is when they're when they find out about the basement husband and they're going upstairs. He like climbs up the stairs like on on his his hands and knees. And then when they're trying to hide when the parks are coming home from the the camping trip that got rained out, you see the sun do the same thing. And it happens Uh right after. And a lot of it kind of pointed this out, this part of it out where you know, they've just talked about, or they, they were joking around and the mother of the, the Kim family says, well, if the parks came in right now, you would, you know, you'd run away and hide like a cockroach or whatever. And then when they actually come home, you see the son like crawling up the stairs and you see the family like (laughs) crawling under the table and under the couch to hide and stuff like that. Like literally like roaches, like skittering away. Um, it's it's an infestation, which, which is a, a recall to the, uh, the opening 
or one of a, a very early scene where they let the uh, the fumigation. The, yeah, the people who are fumigating the streets they leave their windows open. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. And uh, another sort of animal um, shout out is when uh, the son, I can't remember his name, the guy who who forges the tutor, you know, the college uh, stuff so he can become the girl's tutor. He is looking at the little boys, Da Song's uh, painting uh, with the, with the mother and says, Oh, it's a, it's a chimpanzee, right? It's a self-portrait. <laughs> self-portrait. <laughs> and he goes, he's like, Oh, Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the film is, is the grift of how you see them like putting together this like elaborate series of things to get them in the house and get them on the payroll. Um, and it starts out with the son who is actually qualified to do the job more or less, but it's, it's because he's taken the test so many times and you assume like failed or not had a high enough score. Mm-hmm. So his friend who's a college student and they like, valorize him for being a college student and having all this vigor and all that uh he's like oh well who else would i like why would i trust someone else when you have taken the test four times or whatever and also he doesn't think that he'll steal his girlfriend which is a a weird part of the film um yeah it it, would you know when when a a guy does that in america it's a little creepy of like waiting for her to get to college and then you ask her (laughs) like uh it's a little strange um and then, you know, the, the daughter coming in after she helps forge the documents, which is weird is showing like they have actual skills. They just have no way to use them to earn income. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a major point is that there's no uh, <clears throat> there's no categorical or like, um, you know, there's no like value difference in skill set difference in the in the rich people and poor people it makes me think of the <clears throat> hemingway fitzgerald um sort of uh, apocryphal story where one of uh, i think it's fitzgerald says there's a there's a you know there's a real difference between rich people and poor people and hemingway is reported to have said yeah rich people have more money um <laughs> uh, and you sort of see that Bong sort of comes down on, on Hemingway's side there. Like, yeah, here the difference between rich people and poor people is that rich people have money. And that if those poor people had money, that they would be like the rich people. Um, that money is a real player in shaping, you know, uh, who people are. Yeah. And I, I think it plays into sort of the you know, the title of, of Parasite, which is very, you know, the kind of a brilliant move on, on the part of, of Bong and his co-writer to just put that word out there and like not really elaborate on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you have this idea of, you know, the parks as these rich people are, you know, without question benefiting from leeching the, you know, the labor and the, the life of these people that work for them. Um, and, you know, the system that's like set up to, allow them to have this great big house and all this money while other people have so little. But then the Kims are definitely, you know, not innocent by any means, as we've been saying of like 
leeching off the parks. And they even, when they have their little dinner, they're celebrating and says, you know, there's so much money flowing from their house into ours. And we need to thank Mr. Park. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the other family, the old housekeeper and her husband are doing the same sort of thing. Um, yeah, especially the husband. He's the one who's all about respecting Mr. Park. Yeah. And, and which is weird because it's like, yes, he's literally like parasitic, like leeching off this family to live, but he's in both cases, they're like very thankful <laughs> that this person is there for them to do that. But it, yeah, like you're saying though, it's so specific. It's like, it's like they cannot see the wider culture that's creating the inequality. They're just like, Oh, thank God for Mr. Park. And, and the guy in the basement, you know, just kind of worships him in a weird way. Um, but there's no, you know, it's like they're only thinking about Mr. Park. They cannot, they cannot conceive of the wider kind of paradigm in which Mr. Park exists, you know, or at least they can't critique it if they can see it. Yeah. And so their whole world is pretty much shrunk down to the, the park home. Like literally that's where a bulk of the film takes place. Uh, mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the parks are like mobile. They're out doing stuff, going to the store. <laughs> going on a camping trip, all sorts of things. Um, and, and it kind of made me think of, of Ghosh's whole thing where he talks about, he says climate change is not a problem of science. It's a problem of culture and desire. And kind of yeah. like we talked about with Gun Island, he talks a lot of, about, um, just Bert mid, mid sentence. <laughs> uh, but he, he talks a lot about um, desire as in this sort of like capitalistic consumerist desire of, you know, everyone's got a smartphone so they can see what they're missing out on and sort of have desire for that thing and try to go and get that thing. Um, it, it, a lot of music we've been listening to, like the local college station, which isn't great, but I, I hear like music that I otherwise wouldn't hear because I don't listen to the radio. And a big thing in a lot of songs now is this sort of formulation of I see it, I want it, I go get it. And that's like almost <laughs> verbatim what people say. And, um, I think Beyonce says that in a song. Anyway, um, that's sort of the the culture. And she also says "hot sauce in my bag" swag. I think I think she actually what I'm talking about is information in that song. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's um, just that, that that sort of desire of I will go and, and get this thing, and I you know they have it. Why can't I have it too? That sort of thing, and not really thinking about how that plays into this overall system that is just kneecapping so many people around the world yeah there's uh, earlier sort of weirdly you said the word subterranean which is a word i wanted to uh, bring into the conversation because it seems like bong uh in this movie and especially in snowpiercer uh is making a conscious effort to sort of instill the metaphor of you know the the underclass as subterranean as like the you know beneath the ground that the rich walk on and and sort of supporting the ground that the rich walk on and um the the guy who lives in the basement uh or initially the way he hits the lights uh, as Mr. Park walks up the steps mm -hmm. is one of the, uh, is one of the smartest parts I think of the film because you see 
his role, uh, the guy in the basement's role is subservient. It's, you know, slave-like. And yet he's doing this weird ritualistic, you know, lighting of the lights as the guy, as Mr. Park comes home uh, out of the word he keeps repeating, respect for Mr. Park. Um, and again, it's out of an ignorance, you know, that he, he can't see that Mr. Park and his ilk are creating a culture that relegates him to a rich person's basement. Um, but there's this sort of literalization of a poor person creating a sort of unnecessary uh, luxury for a rich person. You know, oh, when you get to this step, this light will light up. When you get to the next step, this light will light up. And it seems like what Bong is saying there is that for all this unnecessary luxury, I guess that's kind of redundant, but for all this luxury, there are people doing manual labor to allow that to happen. Like there are people uh, that uh, are part of the cost of this luxury. Yeah. We don't think about how or why the lights come on. We just know they come on and that it's cool. Uh, And, you know, you have the husband literally like slamming his head into the lights uh, in this weird ritualistic way, Uh, which again is strange because as you were saying, his whole thing is he, he kind of venerates and almost worships Mr. Park and he has his, his thing of respect, (laughs) like screaming it. Um, So it's, he, he enjoys the work and he's sort of become, he sort of has Stockholm syndrome and he's explaining to the the father of the Kim family later on that you know he just he's just begging him like please just let me keep living down here like I like it down here I really enjoy it just leave me leave me be and I'll spend the rest of my days down here uh, and he's it's very like weirdly sincere and moving as he's explaining it and you see Mr. Mr. Kim just sort of like confused and like sad <laughs> for this guy and like yeah it's just a He's Mr. Kim sort of seeing in that moment, like, if I keep chasing this thing, this is what I will become. If I keep sort of following this path of uh, only living to, you know, get my little bit, you know, out of this hustle. It could be because I I just finished The Idiot uh, by Dostoevsky, but, uh, you know, maybe I've just got Dostoevsky on the brain, but there's probably something, some sort of connection to be made between this and the underground man. Mm-hmm. Did you ever read that? Uh, yeah, I read, I read the translation I read was notes from underground, but it's oh, the yeah, same thing. Yeah. Notes from the underground, the underground man is what the character is called. Mm-hmm. Uh, haven't read it in a long time, but I read it. Yeah, like it's, an undergrad. it's been a while for me, but I, it just, it just feels, uh, it feels right. I have to take another look at it, but <laughs> this feels right. feels good. Well, well, I know it's about, it's about, you know, the, the culture at large sort of creating these, you know, underground men, um, sort of driving them underground, um, to where they're, they kind of function as the culture's unconscious and, and I definitely think that is part of what Bong is getting at is uh, especially through all the like toilet 
and like sewage stuff in the Kim's home it is a suggestion that these uh, the poor people are kind of the culture's unconscious the things we we flush away and don't want to think about but that inevitably resurface or um come to light in some way but as he shows only in they only come to light you know in places where the the privileged people don't have to deal with it or you know they're the privileged people are just oblivious to it as it's happening you know right under their noses um Uh, uh, another part i really liked was uh after the the their house is flooded with sewage and they've just spent this night in some sort of gym you know some sort of gymnasium and on a cot probably got half an hour of sleep the next you know the next morning before the party miss park says to mr park oh you must be tired because they like had sex the night before (laughs) it's just like they had to sleep on the couch oh no yeah yeah he must be tired because their their son wanted to camp in the yard um to pretend to be an indian yeah which is that's another thing that's like i haven't really thought about how to think about that there was an article and i'll have to look and see where it came from and who wrote it but it's this very sort of well thought out longer article that's about uh colonialism it's called reading colonialism in parasite um by this person who this is just a username so i can't even tell you who it is but it comes from the website topics of tropics of meta uh, historiography for the masses and a friend of mine uh, shared it with me by uh baek jong min i'm probably not saying that right but that's who wrote it Uh, oh no sorry never mind that's a different article they have another one about parasite i'm all over the place anyway this article is uh very well thought out very well researched um i haven't read through all of it It, uh, written by juhyun park there we go um but yeah it's just talking touching on different aspects of where uh colonialism pops up in parasite because we don't since south korea has been such a sort of success story and it's where like we get our lg electronics from instead our kias and stuff we we don't think of it as being uh, colonized in the same way as we would see like a lot of Africa or the Caribbean, different places like that. But in a lot of ways it, you know, was a, a, an American colony um, well into the 20th century, um, you know, more or less in the Korean war. No one ever talks about it in the U S it's not really that big of a deal, but it really destroyed most of the country and, and completely changed its historical trajectory and split it in two and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and that's a really gross simplification, but looking at it in a sort of colonized way. And so I didn't really get to the part. I, w- I wish I would have like gone back and read what, what the writer said about the, the whole native American connection, but it is interesting to see someone who is so just a family that is so completely removed from any sort of native American way of being. And that's like all the son wants is to, <laughs> is to yeah. play, play Indians in the, in the living room and shoot arrows at people. And they keep mentioning that they, that they bought the tent. She got the tent from the U S you know, she ordered it. So it should be good. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, it won't leak because it's from the U.S. But the fact that it's, you know, as they keep saying, Indian, uh, I think, you know, we're definitely supposed to pick up on a thematic parallel, like the the oppression happening here to the Kims is very similar uh, in a lot of ways to the oppression of of the American uh, genocide of and eventual takeover of Native Americans uh, who, who also function in a lot of ways as the kind of American unconscious, you know, this, this shit we kind of sweep off to the side and don't like to think about, but that creeps up in, in meaningful ways. Yeah. And it's also sort of tied to, um, a, a couple of things that, that sort of are occurring to me as we're talking about it. So one of them is just that the idea of the, the image of native Americans, at least the one that you see in parasite where it's a sort of like childish, like, these things that are symbolic of of native american culture become playthings, and they're sort of made generic and sort of tps and arrows yeah they integrate into the culture in a way that completely you know robs them of any kind of meaning beyond just like this symbol of this people that were around a long time ago that sort of thing as uh, uh rick roderick would say it banalizes them <laughs> yeah pretty much have you ever heard that talk he's like the, the banalization of culture no, I, I don't know if i've heard that one or not but <laughs> I, I like him a lot yeah uh r.i.p rick Roderick. yeah uh, but the, the, the other thing is that uh and it, it comes up in a couple of places of, of the scouts like the boy scouts mm, yeah. um and the boy scouts start as a sort of like a way of of sort of ingraining empire into the minds of young young boys and sort of training them giving them the tools that they would need to go out into empire and be successful um and, and that's sort of you know the one of the origins of the scouts that no one talks about now now it's just sort of like getting merit badges and boxcar derbies and that sort of thing um but th that and sort of child abuse <laughs> yeah um that that sort of connections there too and i think at one point uh, say something about like he's a scout at heart or something about one of the characters, mm. something like that. Anyway, it's it, just a connection that that I was thinking of. Um, but yeah, it's definitely one of the stranger aspects in that the the whole climax of the film happens while um, two of the characters are wearing these you know ridiculous headdresses and like playing this this role in this little stage production that they're putting on for for Dasong. For his birthday. Yeah, there's a. Uh, it's it's kind of cringeworthy the way the parents, um, lavish their son with attention, um, and indulge his every whim, and uh, I, I, it, there's like a weird sort of Freudian thing going on there. But it, as I was watching this, I was just thinking, yeah, rich people do think their children are all geniuses. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I just, I'm not sure where that came from, but, and they, you know, any sort of drawing or painting or 
you know, doodle in the dirt that someone uh, that a rich kid makes, they think is some indication. <laughs> I think the movie says like he has a, he's a, I know he's only nine, but he has a Basquiat sense of color or something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, cause art's easy, right? And, and he's yeah. a gifted child because if both of his parents are gifted, therefore how could he not? Right. And why are they gifted? Because they're successful. <laughs> right. That's, it kind of just chases its tail until it ramps its own head up its ass. And the only the only real gift that the little boy has is innocence, that he is as yet uncorrupted by the, uh, you know, by the knowledge of his own status in society. And so I think that's why he's the one who sees the ghost, you know, in quotes, the ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the one who... Uh, still inhabits the spaces where these people are visible because he has not been conditioned yet to, you know, that would render them uh, invisible. Yeah. For sure. And. Hmm. What's his name? Dasson. Yeah. I keep saying, I just keep saying the sun. Here comes the sun. Yeah. Do and do do. At a point, but I forgot what I was going to say. So just keep on, on rolling along. Um, so yeah, the, the, the camping trip, I believe, I think this is what I was going to say actually, but you were talking about how they, they sort of lavish all this attention on their son. And we, we sort of learn that's because of the episode where he sees the ghost and he has like a seizure because it, you know, terrifies him so much. And, and so that's why the mother is so concerned with his well-being and they're always you know worried about him. Um, so when they're preparing for the camping trip, it was really interesting where they, they're, they have, uh, the, the park mother and they're like, or the Kim mother, I mean, and they're like sending her in the basement to gather all the things and they're like, get the beam projector and they're going to take a movie projector with them mm-hmm. to, to the camping trip. And it's like, and also get his rain jacket because he loves it when it rains. Um, and you can imagine the kind of campground that they would go to, which would be like highly sort of curated and, and yeah. manicured and, you know, it'd be more like a, it'd be like glamping, be more like a hotel. It'll be like their, their backyard. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and that's the only green space in the whole movie that we see is the yard of the, within the like park compound. Yeah. Um, and you know, and you get, see the, the city that the, the Kims inhabit is just disgusting. Oh yeah. Like overflowing with literal shit in the streets. And, yeah. and so when the, and this is coming from, you know, I, was, I watch these like video analyses sometimes. Um, and sometimes they make me feel like a dumbass, And sometimes I'm like the person who made this is a dumbass. but I made a, <laughs> or I watched a wisecracked one that was comparing it this movie to Joker and it was okay. But one point that they made that I hadn't really like, it makes perfect sense, but I had never really put it together in these kind of words is that you see how something as, as sort of mundane as a rainstorm would affect the two families very differently. So you have the parks where it means they have to cut their camping trip short, but that's not that big of a deal. The sun still gets to sleep out in the yard and the next day, the mother's on the phone and she says it's such a nice day and there's no pollution because of the rain. So it like actually improves their lives Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, versus the Kims who 
almost lose their home and lose all of their possessions and you know are, are literally like wading through a river of shit to try to save things in their home um so it, and it kind of gets back to like climate change points too of you know who are the people that are, will be first and most heavily affected by the effects of climate change it'll be the poor in these vulnerable areas um and, and so i thought that was a really like I said, I sort of understood the symbolism before, but I'd never really put it so tightly together like that. But just seeing how, you know, again, something like just some heavy rain, it doesn't even seem like it's really that bad, is enough to sort of cause this, you know, immense rift or sort of to make the rift between these two families even more explicit than it already was. Yeah. Um, maybe Maybe the saddest image from this movie is is during the the shit storm and uh the daughter jessica i guess we'll call her is back in their in their home sitting on the toilet you know it's sort of on this raised uh platform Mm -hmm. she's sitting on the toilet to keep the shit water from spewing out everywhere and she's smoking a cigarette yeah and to me that was just this perfect encapsulation of like a life of poverty it's like doing your best to keep you know the shit storm from erupting everywhere and taking refuge in small you know little treats that are also extremely you know hazardous to you say that will kill you eventually yeah Um, yeah that she's probably my favorite character in the whole movie I just like her general demeanor of like not yeah. giving a fuck. <laughs> and she's so smart, you know. Yeah. I, I love the part where she's explaining how she like got the job to her family. She's like, oh, yeah, I just Googled art therapy and then just made the rest of the shit up. <laughs> yeah. And because the the, uh, the mother is, is uh, young and simple, as mm. uh, Min, the, the, son, the son's friend, mentions near the beginning of the film, she just completely by it just eats it up like her the mother's reactions the the park mother's reactions are, are some of the best parts of the movie like when they tell her things she's like <gasps> and like gas and like covers her mouth like when the husband is just telling her about his theory about the drugs and the the right. prostitute in the car and she's like oh my god <laughs> it's like her reactions are, are so good and i it, it bothers me because i i see i feel like i know people like her um and did you notice how she sort of acts like a pet? Like when the husband comes home, she's like lying on the couch and the husband walks in and she like sits up real quick and like runs to him like a dog. Yeah. It's fucked up. But, uh, yeah, she's, uh, I mean, the first time we see her is, is when, um, she's passed out like face down on the table and the, the housekeeper has oh, yeah. to like clap to wake her up. Yeah. And that's our introduction yeah. to her as a character. It's like, oh, this is someone who's just like checked out. Yeah, she's just half dead already. Yeah. Um, it it kind of strangely reminded me of that uh the, the the movie in general reminded me of that uh George Saunders story. I can't remember all the details. I think it's in the tenth tenth of December, where there's like Is it called Puppy? I can't remember there's like uh people used as like lawn 
decorations or lawn tools in some way. I can't remember what it is, but the the spirit of it felt similar. Yeah. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I do, but I can't remember off the top of my head. I was uh, in my head. I was thought you were going to talk about puppy, which is the this. Uh, it's from an earlier collection. I think it's from like Pastoralia or something about um the family. The woman takes her daughter to pick up this puppy from this poor family. And the poor family, uh, the poor mom has like one of her sons is like mentally handicapped and she has him tied to a tree in the back mm. and you get the inner monologue of both of the mothers where like the, the more like the richer middle-class mom is like appalled, but the poor mom is like, I just needed a second and he's happier when he's outside and I know it looks bad, but it's what's best for it. And like goes back and forth like that. It's, it's. It has a lot to say about class, sort of like Parasite, but the the name of the story you're talking about, I can't it, I can't think of what it is right now. I, I can't either, but I remember hearing Saunders talk about it, and he said that it, it it sounds very cliche, but he just he dreamed that concept. It was just like <laughs> had a dream where that was that was the thing, and he's just like, okay, I'm gonna write that. No, I'm gonna have to go back and look at that because I can't remember. Yeah, it's I'm, a lot of what Saunders writes is is you know about class. Um, I wish I could remember the details of it, but it's something about human beings used as either like lawn ornaments or as somehow like permanent fixtures on the lawn as maintenance tools or something. Uh, it, I was, obviously it's George Saunders, so it's, you know, kind of surreal, uh, but also very politically relevant. <laughs> yeah. George Saunders, another like Anthropocene's recommendation. Yeah. Big time. If you haven't read him, you should do so. That would be, you always see George Saunders like talking, you know, g- doing interviews with people. There's one with him and, uh, oh shit, what's the like country music singer? Jason like, Isbell. Jason Isbell. He's yeah. got that long interview about, you know, writing, uh, which is pretty interesting. Which was great. But I would love to hear, uh, George Saunders and Bong Joon Ho sit down and talk. Oh, that'd be great. He has another, I think he does those for like Rolling Stone or something. But he, he has another one of those with Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. Oh, That's cool. Really, and, and what I like about those interviews is that obviously George Saunders is very bright and he's actually a really good interviewer. He yeah. asks a lot of like excellent questions that aren't the run of the mill, like, oh, so what got you into music sort of thing. Um, but also, especially with the Jason Isbell, like I didn't think Jason Isbell was, was like an idiot or anything, but he's a pretty sharp guy. Yeah. Uh, he yeah, had some sure. like really nuanced answers. I still don't like his. I still don't like his music that much, though. <laughs> <laughs> I I do, except for like he's got some songs that I think are a little bit cheesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one Jeff Tweedy was also good, and Tweedy's got a autobiography he wrote that I'm kind of interested in reading if I ever see it, like in a used bookstore or something. Yeah. Anyway, um, I I want to talk about Parasite as a cultural. Th- phenomenon for a second yeah because it, we we kind of joked at the end of the last episode about uh president trump and his whole 
uh, railing against this film winning Best Picture and saying that why can't we get Gone with the Wind back and, you know, other assorted dumbassery. And, and so he's not alone in that. Like Twitter was full of people who were very upset that a quote unquote not Amer- like non-American film had one Best Picture. Um, some of them were like, incels that were mad that the that Joker didn't win or something like that, or like Tarantino fans. Um, but it, this weird kind of like xenophobic reaction to it. And also that coupled with Bong Joon-ho and his just wonderful, I don't give a fuck attitude of like telling people that once you get over, you know, your resistance to reading subtitles, you open up this whole world of film uh, what's he, he calls it like the two inch tall wall or something. It's like, once you get right. over that, then you'll, you'll open up a whole new world. Um, and so it, it's been fascinating to see different people's reactions. And I think most people, the reaction is like, who gives a shit? It's the Oscars, whatever. Um, but the fact that this film was able to do that, um, even though, you know, maybe, I, I don't know what the Academy, if they're making some sort of like play to be woke or whatever it could be, even though, you know, they're all millionaires and, involved in the entertainment industry to pick a film that's about the evils of capitalism and how it turns everybody into a kind of parasitic monster. That's, um, you know, an interesting thing to look at. Um, but yeah, this film kind of became other than outside of what is actually going on in the movie became a sort of external kind of thing there for a minute. It's kind of died down now. Well, I'll tell you what I think Bong's true gift is, is packaging. Uh, Packaging meaningful stories in palatable ways. Snowpiercer, like we talked about, is a fucking badass action movie that, if you pay attention to it, is about class. Um, And... And Okja is very similar, and Parasite is very similar. Where this, uh, like I said, this is the best picture, uh, objectively. I, um, maybe there is some sort of, uh, you know, play going on to, you know, the, they want the, they want to seem woke or whatever. But this movie is fucking riveting to watch. It is. I was on the edge of my seat, and. I can see where people who don't give a shit about any of the things we talk about being entertained, uh, you know, very well entertained by this movie. Um, so I, I really think that is Bong's gift is, is, you know, he's a great stylist. He has substance, but he also has this sort of mass appeal. Um, he's, he's just a great, great filmmaker um, yeah. and I, I can see it going either way with the Academy. Like, yeah, this could be a sort of, you know, attempt to seem woke, but it's also objectively a great film. If it had been, you know, some sort of questionable movie, it's like, it's like who the hell <laughs> is going to remember green book in five years. Right. Other than it being like an undeserving best picture. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and, and his trajectory, Bong's trajectory, is like is a lot like those of like Inuritu, who made a few really well received films and then eventually broke through and won Best Picture, mm-hmm. um, or um, 
shit, the other guy <laughs> uh, that I'm yeah, thinking of. Quaron? Uh, yeah, Quaron, yeah, yeah. Who uh, didn't win Best Picture, right? Did it? I don't remember anything. My brain is Which mush. Which one? Ro- Roma, Roma did not win. Okay, lost but, the Green Book. Oh, yeah, okay, that's what the big... But Which it should have But it should have, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, that Criterion just came out a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Roma. And the fact that those three directors are all like not American directors is, is kind of beside the point because I think it, what what's happening or what happened with Bong is that he'd been out there in the world for a long time making really strong films and then he makes his strongest and he gets rewarded for it. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's also, you know, you said he's a, he's a great filmmaker, which he is, but he's also in a lot of ways kind of the quintessential Anthropocene's director because he's looking at, you know, a lot of the th- kinds of things that we always talk about and that we're interested in. But like you're saying, he manages to do so in a way that at its very core is entertaining and engrossing and you, you, you know, are sort of hanging on your seat to see what comes next. Um, yeah, he, he uses the things that everyone loves about movies to say the types of things that directors who don't typically use the things that everyone loves about movies, you know, do to make their points. You know, imagine, you know, somebody like Paul Schrader, uh, who, who you know, you and I love First Reformed, but there that movie has nothing close to the type of universal appeal as something like Snowpiercer or Okja or even Parasite. I would, I would say Parasite of those three films is the least accessible. Number one, it has subtitles, uh, but it's also the least, uh, sort of pulpish Snowpiercer is just kind of an unapologetic action film. Mm -hmm. Um, that, I mean, the action is predicated upon, these sort of important ideas of, you know, class and the, the train, each car in the train functions as a, as a different aspect of the culture. And that's very cool, but you can also get high and watch this movie and just be like, Oh, I kicked it, ass. Yeah. It like you know? it, it writes, it writes its messages on a brick and throws it through your fucking window. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and, and Okja is just so cool. Just so stylish. Uh, and like I was saying earlier, I don't think I mentioned this uh, while we were recording. I, I, it seems to me that the uh, at the end of Parasite, when someone gets stabbed with a skewer of sausage, seems to be a little bit of a maybe a shout out to Okja. Yeah. Uh, because I think I think we we found out Bong became a vegan or a vegetarian uh, in the in the research he did for Okja. Mm-hmm. Which that that movie will will put you off of uh, industrial meat. That's for sure. Oh yeah, and that and in all of those films, maybe Snowpiercer is probably the weakest in this respect. Although it's still there, he's very good at creating these big like emotional moments that are deeply moving, kind of out of nowhere, like out of these plots that don't seem like they should hold that kind of emotion. Um, or at least, you know, in, in my opinion, so it's Snowpiercer. I don't really remember. There's all the stuff with like the kid under the train and that's kind of, you know, deeply sad, but there's not that it, it, you know, because it's such like a balls out action movie. It's not as present. Well, uh, that takes me back. That's, that's the point I was originally making about the subterranean, like 
you know, the kids are under the, yeah. under the train sort of, uh, acting as kind of fuel or, you know, everything that happens above ground is based on what these, uh, oppressed kids are doing below ground. And obviously there's parallels with uh, parasite. Yeah. And then in Okja, that movie is just, if you have any sort of empathy for non-human animals at all, like that movie will just like wreck you for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, or, or, or just, you know, young humans, like the little yeah. girl is like sympathetic enough. Yeah. And we talked about it in that episode that some people may say like, Oh, that's, you know, emotionally manipulative. And it's like, yeah, it is. That's the point. Cause this is yeah, an that, important topic. That's, that's what movies are. Um, and then, you know, and, and the ending of Parasite specifically is so just like deep. It's just like a sledgehammer to the chest of him writing the letter to his father. And like, I'm going to make all this money and I'm going to buy the house. And on that day, all you have to do is walk up the stairs and then ending on that shot of him sitting in their shitty basement yeah, apartment. Yeah. You, you realize that, you know, it, it, Bong won't give you the satisfaction of, Oh, you know what? This all works out. You know, there, there is this upward mobility and, and the son is going to make all this money. You realize that's just his fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's so brilliant. I love the sort of wordplay, which I noticed in, uh, I rewatched Ad Astra. Uh, and, and there's, there's a similar sort of wordplay as last lines in, uh, Ad Astra and Parasite. So in Parasite, the son is reading the letter and he's sort of signing the letter, you know, signing off. And he says, so long, yeah. which is, uh, you know, which means goodbye. But also it implies this, if, if, if this is going to happen, it's going to be so long in the works. Um, but in Ad Astra, the word is, uh, submit, uh, Roy, Oh, it's like, yeah. you know, doing his like, uh, evalu- psych- psychological evaluation. And he says, uh, you know, obviously he's made this complete turnaround and he says, submit to submit his psychological evaluation. But you realize that the pun is that it's also, uh, an imperative, you know, it's like he's saying you submit that people should submit to this new way of life that he's sort of come into being anyway. Uh, the, the wordplay at the end made me think of that. Um, it, it kind of bums me out that Ad Astra is a really good movie, but I feel like it's just kind of going to kind of fade away. People hate that fucking movie. I've realized, uh, I don't understand why. Like it's, it's cool. <laughs> I, you know, I watched a, uh, a YouTube video called like science versus cinema or something like that, where it's got some science scientist, some fucking uh, nerd, some science scientist, uh, assessing, you know, how realistic the science is in different movies. And one of his videos is on Ad Astra and he's, you know, taking exception to all these things. And it's just like, you fucking nerd. Like, this is not what the movie is about. It's, you know, it's science fiction. Yeah, it's, it's not real. It's, it's not story. a problem of science. Right? This is it's not what it means. It's the same way people talk about that shit with Interstellar. 
and they get caught up in it and they have no idea what that movie's about. Uh, it, it seems like it's even worse. Um, and all the comments I was reading, you know, people leave all these comments on YouTube to these videos. It's like, man, this movie was so boring. I fell asleep in this movie. So boring. It's like, it troubles me. Yeah. It troubles me a lot. It's not, you know, uh, three hours of CGI dudes punching each other really hard. Yeah. So they, they're not very interested in it. And that, and that movie, you know, watching it for the second time is not subtle. Like it is, it is about the sort of boomer ideology. It's really about, and I don't know how the fuck we miss this reference. Uh, it's really about space cowboys, the Clint Eastwood oh, movie. Yeah. You know, Tommy Lee Jones is in that, right? Tom, and, and, uh, Donald Sutherland. Oh, uh, weird. Yeah. It's, it, it's about, that sort of uh orientation to the world and, and space cowboys is just like uh you know acts as this apologist for that ideology which is not surprising because it's clint eastwood um but yeah somehow we miss that in the in our episode on that and in you know talking about clint eastwood but I'm- uh I don't know. There's like at some point we might have to do like a retrospective episode about just space. We'll call it space junk. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Where we talk about like that and interstellar and melancholia and maybe gravity, gravity. And like uh, I think about like melancholia versus Armageddon. Oh, Armageddon's another thing we didn't mention because Liv Tyler in Ad Astra is sort of reprising her role. The, the the earth wife yeah yeah i didn't think about that either that's it's really strange the connection to the earth yeah there's very conscious casting in ad astra uh tommy lee jones donald sutherland and uh live tyler because there's not that many people in the movie um anyway watched it loved it again and uh it just made me think of it, like I said, because the last line in Parasite is a similar kind of uh, play on words. Mm-hmm. And that ending is so like a while back you said Bong won't let that ending happen, like won't give us that. And I think he's doing that because, you know, capitalism will not let that ending happen. Right. Like there, there's it would no be way. dishonest if it ended on a positive note. Oh, yeah. I was rewatching this today with Lava, and she was like, I was going to be so pissed off if that was the end. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. nice, but it's like anything that nice is impossible when you're so, you know, entwined in all of these systems that are just designed to, to keep you in the basement. And the, and the absurdity of it all is like we're supposed to be moved at the end by the son's, you know, declaration that he's going to make all this money. But that is what got them yes. into this predicament in the first place is him trying to make money. Misplaced desire, right? Because that's what the culture is telling you is important. Uh, is making money, going abroad, buying a big house, having a nice car, you know, making, well, I mean, giving your kids opportunity to be artists. 
it's hard to, you know, it gets into difficult territory here because there's a, there's healthy poverty. There's like spiritually healthy poverty. And then there's poverty that is soul crushing and devastating. And you see, I think you see the devastating type of poverty in parasite, um, to where these people are, the Kims are not free to, they're just not free. No. They're and not the in whole, control of their lives. Yeah. And the they're whole film completely opened, beholden yeah. to, to other people. Yeah. Uh, and at the opening when they're looking for the Wi-Fi and like the free Wi-Fi is gone and they're trying to connect to the cafe or whatever and they need the Wi-Fi. It's not like a, Oh, look at these poor people who want this luxury. They can't afford because they don't, you know, it's not that it's that, in today's world, you need Wi-Fi to exist. Basically, you need some sort of connection to the internet to get a job. Yeah, you realize they need Wi-Fi because they're checking on their job applications. Yeah, which you you have to have. Like it's just it's not optional anymore, and it's a big barrier for a lot of people. And that's why like you, everyone should be a big advocate of public libraries, 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 and things like that. Um, so the the beginning, it's like it's comical. Like a lot of the film is like darkly comical. But it, it, whether or not they have Wi-Fi is a serious concern. And that's why, like, one of the first things they do when they get some money from the pizza boxes is they turn it back on or, like, pay to have it turned back on or to have access mm-hmm. to it. And, yeah, they, like, mention the Wi-Fi in, like, the pre-meal prayer. Yeah. This bountiful Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is a nice touch. And that's when their friend comes or uh, the son's friend comes in and he's, like, embarrassed that he's in the house. Mm-hmm. And they're like eating chips and beer. And he's like, no, we weren't eating. We we're just hanging out. <laughs> and that's like, you talk to talk about like Bong's artistry. He's really, he puts together these like masterful shots. And one of them is when the drunk guy comes back and is pissing in the street. And the daughter is like filming her brother and, and her dad throwing water on this guy on her phone. And it's like in slow motion. And you see like, the dad throwing a bucket of water and the son's got a bottle. And then the dude is, is like turning and you see his like piss stream <laughs> go by. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like this guy is pissing there because he has nowhere else to piss. He does yeah. not have a pot to piss in. And he's also just hammered. And yeah. the fa- and he, like they say at the beginning when they see him the first time, he's like, he's pissing there because he doesn't see it as a problem. Right. He would never piss on like the side of the park's house, but this doesn't mm-hmm. count. Like these people, you know, who cares about these people? Yeah. Um, but this, just that scene is so like, it's such a good encapsulation of Bong's whole ethos as a director where it's like beautiful, but what you're looking at is just inherently absurd and funny, but also depressing. And it's just all these things yeah. happening at once. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, he, he packs a lot in to, uh, to these honestly, you know, commercially viable products, but they're, they're so much more than that. And they're pretty to look at. Yes. At the very least. Yeah. I'll tell you what though, they're no gone with the wind. <laughs> uh, how many, how many Americans under the age of 
40 would you say have seen Gone with the Wind like percentage wise? It can't be very uh, high, right? No, I mean definitely less than half, you know, probably probably less than a quarter. And I, you know, I'm not talking shit about Gone with the Wind. It's like, you know, a triumph of of movie making. Um worth seeing. <laughs> I remember watched it in high school for I forget why, but it took like 3 days to watch it. Yeah, it's forever long. I had a thought when I was watching the last time I watched The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And I can't shake this thought. I don't know what year Gone with the Wind. 39. So the same year, roughly, I guess. I think Wizard of Oz was 39 as well. Um I had the thought watching The Wizard of Oz, and I apply it to all other films made around the same time, that any sort of technical achievement is kind of creepy around this time because it happened before the Holocaust or like simultaneous Mm. to the Holocaust. And it's like, how crazy is it that we were advanced enough to make something? If you watch The Wizard of Oz, it's like, you know, it's not that dated in a lot of ways. It's like technologically, I mean, it's like very watchable, very technologically sound. I mean, obviously it's a set, but it's, um, it, it's a technological achievement. And then the Holocaust happened and it, and it makes, you know, it just makes the reality so much more immediate of the atrocity that is, you know, that's so possible. Pe- people talk about World War II and the Holocaust as, you know, they talk about it so much and there's so much, uh, um, I don't even know how to explain it. There's just uh, this sort of mystique about it because it, it almost feels mythological the way people talk about it. And it's like they talk about it that way as like a defense mechanism so that it doesn't feel like something that could happen again. Um, but when I watch old movies that, that are technologically sound and predate world war two, it creeps me out. Yeah. And, and a lot of people who study the, I keep moving my mic. A lot of people who study the Holocaust will, talk about it in terms of if you talk about it in like a biopolitical sort of way it was this the ultimate culmination of uh logistics and technology and all yeah, of these things what, coming that's it's sort what, of the nexus uh, of that that's that's what marcuse argues in eros and civilization that uh like the nuclear warfare is not a sad byproduct of technology it is a natural conclusion of technology. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of brings us back around to to Parasite and all the weird stuff with the, the bunker and why the bunker even exists there in the first place, um, which is, you know, threat of nuclear strike from North Korea, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, that, that sort of constantly looming situation that is just sort of, as Americans, we don't really understand, or maybe we do Maybe the older generations do because they grow they grew up in the Cold War and the, that sort of threat of 
Soviet strike or whatever. Um, but in South Korea, that never really went away. That's still very much a part of everyday life. And I, I've had students from South Korea who I've talked to about this. And um, usually if they're here, that means that they have gotten out of mandatory military service some way. At least the men. Mm. I was told that women don't serve um, by a student. And it's just sort of to talk to them about it. It's just they're like, you know, they're they're 18 or whatever, so they don't give a shit. They're like, yeah, it's just a thing we have to do. It's it's no different than like here when you turn 18, you sign up for selective service, that kind of thing. Like mm. it's just a thing that you do and it doesn't really, they don't think about it very much. But it's just like this crazy, you know, sort of Damocles hanging over constantly. Hmm. Man, there's just there's just so much going on in this movie. Yeah. You know, I, I felt like we were so far afield talking about World War II, but it's like, no, it's it's right there, like you're saying, that nuclear threat. Yeah, and I think a clever part of it that um, is, is a basic thing, but I think it's an important thing, is that this is not a movie about individuals, really. Mm-hmm. It's a movie about family units. And, you know, you, you get generational effects of wealth and poverty. Um, you get, you know, the the basement husband, wife who don't have children and probably don't have children because they can't afford to or they can't provide yeah. for those children. Um, and it's just sort of I think that was a really clever move to not have a singular protag i mean i would say this movie doesn't really have a protagonist or in the antagonist is capitalism and then the the protagonist is no one really um but i think it was clever to to set it up in units like that as opposed to just an individual struggling against something um because i I don't know it it makes it you'd think the individual would be more relatable but i think by doing it as a family you you can sort of see where you would fit in in that situation and it kind of makes it easier to sort of empathize with what's going on, even though it's such a outlandish scenario. And you can see some pretty big differences in terms of the relations among family members in the parks and the Kims. You see the Kims, despite their, you know, dire situation are pretty good together. You know, they work together well because they have to, you know, they support each other. They never question whether or not they should support each other, even if they have to lie, you know, and, and sort of cheat the system. Of course they're going to do it because it's their family. Um, but then you see the, uh, park family kind of, uh, it seems like maybe just sort of going through the motions of doing fun family things. Yeah. Um, like the camping trip where the daughter doesn't want to go. Exactly. And and to make the point even starker, you see in in the sex scene when the family when the when the Kims are like underneath the coffee table and the park Mrs. and Mr. Park are like having sex on the couch next to them, what uh what sort of gets them going, what you know, what gets them all fired up is talking about uh, Jessica's, uh, like, you you know, she does the whole trick where she like leaves her panties in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you hear Mr. Park refer to them as like the cheap 
panties. Yeah. And he says something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but he says something, uh, you know, like that's what sort of gets him going is if she, if she talks about the cheap panties that, you know, makes him super horny. And it's, you you see like uh, Bong sort of literalizing like, Oh, the, the, it, it reminded me of, of Titanic in a way where like Jack, Jack takes Rose, you know, down to the, to the peasant quarters and all of a sudden she's, you know, super horny for him. Um, but we, we sort of talked last week about the, the sort of siphoning effect, um, where you see that the, the upper class families are having to siphon the vitality of the lower classes just to have sex, you know, so empty are their lives and so alienated are their lives. Anyway, I thought there was, there's a lot going on in that scene there. The the fact that what makes them able to have sex and you could argue that, you know, subsequently reproduce is, um, something that happens in tandem with them talking shit about the poor people that serve them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just all tied up this this messy ball of this weird psychosocial stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and we haven't even talked about the the smell. Yet, yeah. Which is it becomes a major plot point of the the uh, parks talking about how the the Kims smell bad. Mm-hmm. And the Kims being like, "Well, we smell bad because of how we have to live, and the only way to change that would be to move and we can't do that, so we just have to smell bad." Yeah. Um, and the it, first, the first person to point it out is Da Song, the little boy. Yeah, yeah. Objectively. Yeah, and you know, he just it, goes up and sniffs him. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And same. it's not judgmental. He's just saying, "Oh, you guys smell the same." <laughs> like, just he doesn't know that it's the smell of the poor or whatever. He doesn't have those kinds of associations yet. Right. Uh, but his father and his mother sure do, and it keeps coming. And it's one of those things where after they talk about it, then they start to really like smell it pretty constantly uh and it's ultimately kind of the trigger that leads you know mr kim to stab mr park in the in the chest yeah because even after you know this guy's died at the end he's just like mr park is holding his nose to turn him over to get his keys yeah there's just like no dignity afforded whatsoever yeah um so yeah, it's that that whole sort of th- uh, through line of the 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 smell, and they talk about like the people in the subway have a, and they won't just come out and say it. You know, they they sort of try to be polite about it. Mm-hmm. Um, as they try to be polite, you know, they said, "Oh, they're so nice," you know, but really they're nice, but they're it's because they're couching everything in this kind of veneer of of niceties. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. Park says something like. It smells like the subway. He's like people that that ride the subway have a very unique smell, or something like that. Yeah, and and his wife says something like, "Oh, I haven't taken the subway in years." Yeah, he says it's like the smell from from when you boil a rag, <laughs> which is just like, oh my god, can you imagine someone telling you you smell like a boiled rag? You'd be like, what the fuck is that? What does that even mean? It sounds like a nineteenth century like slur. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, the just the that complete disconnect. So the parks are just like fantastic characters because in a lot of ways, if you don't think about it too much, you identify with them as sort of being very put upon. It's like, oh, well, they're nice and they don't know any better and they don't. They're, they're being little. tricked. Yeah, they're being they're being siphoned off of. Right, they're the the host for the parasite. Yeah, that's I was going to say earlier. That's what's brilliant about the title is you're invited to speculate who is the parasite and who is the host. And you realize that if your scope is limited the way the parks is limited, the Kims are the parasite. They're living off the host. But if you can broaden your your scope, you see that rich people, the upper class, are are a parasite on the host of the world, the larger culture, creating the conditions that create the dire circumstances of the Kims. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and so there have been some people on on Twitter that are have sort of made this point of um well, you know, the the Kims are are the ones that are, you know, mooching off the rich people and they're the they're the bad guys and it's a problem like you're just saying a problem of scope it's like they don't and those those are the people and that's what the movie is saying about the the weird worship of mr park you know uh people it, it, the way people would worship you know steve jobs or jeff bezos they, they cannot see uh, just a couple episodes back i remember we were talking about uh, i think you said you know people don't uh you know, people don't become billionaires because they worked hard. Yeah. Um, it's it's not because you got up early and did more work. It's just right time, right conditions. You just got super fucking lucky in a system that shouldn't exist anyway. And so you see this particularization or this uh, almost like hero creation. Oh, Mr. Park is wealthy. Mr. Park must be special. And so... Uh, like the the husband who lives in the basement kind of worships Mr. Park as this deity, but he can't see that Mr. Park is a product of his circumstances the same way he is. And he just, you know, Mr. Park is just lucky uh, this, the way the other guy is just unlucky. Um, and so, yeah, scope is the issue here and in in how how wide a scope are you willing to cast your critique to yeah what about the i've thought about this scene but the when mr kim shows up to uh his first day of being mr park's driver and they get in the car and he's holding a cup of coffee and he's like don't think of this as a test and it's like very clearly a test mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it is another one of those scenes like we were talking about where Mr. Kim is is very competent. So he doesn't spill the coffee and he knows where he's going. He doesn't need navigation and all that. Yeah. And, and Jessica can can bullshit it. And, you know, in quotes, Kevin can bullshit the tutor thing, even though he doesn't have to bullshit it. They're all completely competent at doing these things that they supposedly need these highfalutin credentials to do yeah and that's the the funniest bit of they have to 
scrap and lie and cheat and steal and all this to, to get into these positions. But once they get there, they're completely capable of doing them. Yes, um, th- yes. There's no faking that has to go. Well, I mean, and, with Jessica, so, there's and, some faking. And, and Bong is debunking meritocracy. Yes. You know, yes. It's, it's saying it's completely arbitrary. Yes. Um, and the, the father kind of reiterates that when they're, uh, it's when they are having their dinner after they've all gotten their positions in the park household. Uh, and he says, you know, in, in this country where a position for a security guard gets 1000, uh, you know, college degree holders. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that kind of thing. 500. What, yeah, whatever. But yeah. he, you know, his, he's like, gets, you know, all these college educated people applying for it. Like basically saying like, what, what chance do we have? Like maybe him and his wife don't have a college degree and his kids can't seem to get into a college for whatever reason, even though they seem completely competent. Um, so this is kind of their only chance, but they're, they're cheating and sort of fooling this rich family in order to help them by doing their jobs well, which is just that's the mind blowing part for me. It's like, they're not, it's like, yes, they're lying to them, but once they get in the house and they're tutoring or doing the driving Mm -hmm. or doing the cleaning, they're doing it well. Right. Right. So you said like meritocracy. Or at least making it look like they are in, in Jessica's case. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) She's like, she's one of my favorites just because she is, uh, uh, she's so assertive in her, in her false role, you know, Telling the telling the house housekeeper to leave, insisting that she leave uh, for the sake of the integrity of her uh, art therapy. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, she's the one that kind of realizes just how gullible and naive these people are, and like she keeps pushing it to see like if she can get away with it, and she keeps getting away with it, so she keeps going with it. Um, mm. But you know th- that idea that park talks about of you know that they go so far or the father at least goes so far but he never crosses the line right and like the the line is like this i you can't talk about anything too personal you can't get too familiar you know you have to keep that sort of distance but outside of that you can sort of offer advice or whatever else um and it only happens the one time toward the end when he's talking about his wife and he says well after all you do love her uh, you know, calling into question his whole marriage and, and everything. Um, that's when he, yeah. you know, crosses the line, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the first time he brings it up in the car, Mr. Park ends by saying, we'll call it love. Yeah. Kind of confirming the skepticism. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Whereas, you know, and this is kind of a common trope and it kind of pops up here too, where the poor families, their love seems to be very genuine. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the married, the husbands and wives, I mean, like among the family that obviously the parks love their kids and all that sort of stuff. But, um, among like Mr. And Mrs. Kim and the, the, the basement couple, um, you get that they actually like genuinely care for each other and they have these like really strong relationships and you see it. It's because they, they need each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you see it come out in like the, when Mr. Kim acts like he's pissed off and like throws the bottles off the table. Yeah. And it turns out he was, he was just playing. And then with, um, 
uh, uh, Moon Guang or whatever her name is, the the older housekeeper. I really like. I'll only like say whatever her name is because I'm not going to be able to pronounce these names correctly, and I and I should just like not even try. But um, her and her husband, she genuinely cares for him, and you see her like doing that weird like massage thing where she's like got one of his legs up in the air and she's like <laughs> yeah. Um, there's and you get the flashback of them in the living room dancing to the record, and it's like a very yeah. beautiful, peaceful image. And then all hell breaks loose. But that's they seem to genuinely care for each other because, like you're saying, they they actually have a need for one another and they have to support one another in ways beyond just you know signing a check. And and again, like we said before, the tragedy is that that couple. And the Kims can't just sit down and intelligently assess their mutual uh, situation and work out something, you know, that, that is symbiotic. Yeah. And, uh, a, and of course, you know, in the sort of allegorical reading, uh, you know, that has a, has a lot to say about how, um, uh, how the culture is set up to worship the worship rich people in the upper class as heroes and pit poor people against each other, um, through political issues and, uh, you know, a hundred different things. Uh, every, it's like everyone's convinced that they are going to be the parks and, and they view, uh, you know, poor people view other poor people as competition. Uh, that you know, people they're competing against to become the parks, when really they can't see the larger structures relegating the parks to their place and the Kims and other poor people to theirs. Um, so I, I think there's really something to the unspoken and unacknowledged, undiscussed antagonism between the Kims and, you know, the, the original housekeeper and her husband. Yeah. And it shows a, a failure of class solidarity, right? They can't, they can't come together and realize that they're in the same struggle together. Um, not against because that means they would have to admit the shittiness of their position in the first place. Yeah. And the, the fact that, for all their aspirations, it's just going to come to naught. Like it's not, they're never going to be the parks. Right. And the, and the tragedy is that's, that is the, um, sort of wish, you know, the, the, the fantasy that the movie ends on is the same fantasy that it begins with Mm -hmm. that, you know, the son has this fantasy that he's going to make enough money to buy the house. Yeah. And when they, it comes up early on when they make the documents before he goes to the house for the first time and he's walking out the door and he's about to leave. And he says, he turns to his father and he's like, I'm going to go to this school for real. I just printed out the papers a little bit early. Yeah. Um, which is a, you know, equally kind of heartbreaking sentiment because it's sort of behind that is just the realization, like probably not <laughs> like he, that's probably not going to happen. And, but the, the bigger point that people can miss is that shouldn't matter. Right. That shouldn't mean that he's doomed to a life of, you know, just gross indignities and being treated like trash and not being able to, you know, be upwardly mobile in the least. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, man, I feel like we've just been going full blast on this. You you can tell <laughs> you can tell when we watch a really good movie because we're like we don't feel any pressure to like make our conversation conform to previous conversations consistent with the podcast. We're just like this movie fucking rocks. And there's just so much going on in it and all of it uh, is, is important. Like there's not, there's no sort of, you know, we're using every part of the film. (laughs) There's no, no extra fat. Like everything is, is meaningful. And especially like I was saying on a second viewing, you start to pick up on things of like, you know, that's really smart and it's such an intricate, intricately, you know, constructed film. It, uh, I thought of, have you ever seen the movie, the orphanage? It's a Spanish language film, uh, a, a scary movie. I think it was produced by del Toro. I thought you meant like orphan, that weird movie. No, 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 no. Weird, um, like, scary movie. No, I don't I think, think it was seen directed that. by a guy named J a Bayona Bayona. Um, anyway, it's a great, great scary movie, but the big twist, spoiler alert, is you, you kind of think that the whole movie is this supernatural thing and there are some supernatural elements, but, uh, it's like this haunted house movie and you keep hearing these creaks and, Uh, is it about the boy that has, he has like a bag over his head? Yeah. Okay. I have seen that. Okay. Yeah. And it, and it turns out that, you know, the kid was like in in a secret room mm-hmm. in, a, in like a basement. Um, anyway, superficially the, uh, parasite made me think of that, but it's like parasite takes a story like that. That is just kind of cool entertainment on its own, but puts it in this template or, or uses that template to tell a very culturally relevant story. Yeah, Definitely. And it's something that's I, I find fun to do is to consider what a story would be like from alternate from like a single character's point of view. Mm-hmm. So thinking about like if this was a different movie and the uh, song was the the main character, how then it becomes like a ghost story. Yeah, um, and it becomes a completely different film, but it, it could have the same kinds of, of messages and how like crazy the ending would be <laughs> if you were looking at it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying of like, because it's a collective perspective and, and pretty much like the Kims are the, the focus characters that you're following around. You get a lot of different, you get all of those perspectives sort of like coming together to make this bigger picture as opposed to like that one lane. And that's what makes a movie like orphanage, the orphanage effective is because you get that sort of one lane. And then when you expand out, you're like, Oh, we haven't been getting the whole of the story. And really this isn't that scary. It's just sort of, it's it's sad in, in a weird kind of melancholy kind of gothic way. Yeah, yeah. It's and it sort of plays on your expectations of the movie as a horror movie. Uh, but I, I guess my point is that what's so special about Bong is that he's like, okay, let's take something cool like that that is just sort of categorically entertaining. I mean, that's just a cool idea, but I'm going to, I'm going to use that. It's going to be equally entertaining, but I'm going to make it true on, on both psychological and, and, um, you know, sociological levels to where 
the basement is just not the not just the basement. It's it's sort of the cultural unconscious. Um, you know, it's it's the way uh, poverty is sort of repressed in the upper classes, uh, o- o- oppressed outwardly and repressed inwardly. Um, so I I just think bong is what happens when you have someone who's extremely you know technically skilled but also uh, clearly brilliant um, and, and extremely film literate. Like, le- like I keep emphasizing, his movies can function as just pure entertainment, but they're not just pure entertainment. There's there's so much going on in them. Mm-hmm. So, and that, and that's the thing that like I don't get about the criticisms of of the movie. It's like even if you don't quote unquote get it it's still a highly entertaining movie. Like at the very least you'll be able to sit and enjoy it. And even though it's, you know, two hours, it doesn't feel that long as you're sort of watching it because it moves so briskly and it doesn't really. And when did we get so fucking busy that two hours sounded like a long movie? (laughs) Uh, Did you see that? Like the new James Bond movie is like three hours long or whatever. No, but I did. I, I told you I've watched Mission Impossible Fallout twice in the last like week, and it's two and a half hours. I, I'm gonna have to watch it. Apparently, it's like it's, the it's insanely long for a Mission Impossible movie. But it's like it, it sort of harkens back to it. Kind of reminds me of like Cliffhanger uh, at the end. It's just kind of this mono e mono practical effect. You know, good guy versus bad guy in the mountains. Uh, it's a I mean, it's a mindless piece of shit, but it's <laughs> it's awesome. What was the the one the the last one I really enjoyed? So there's the last couple have been Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and then Fallout. Oh, I'm too behind. I saw Ghost Protocol. I don't think I saw Rogue Nation. Man, Tom Cruise is a fucking maniac. I, I get that, but he's a badass as well. He like. The, the stunts he does in these movies are ridiculous. Isn't the thing it's like he's he's like five feet tall or something? I think he's like 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, oh, maybe 5'6", wow. I don't know. And he's just out there kicking ass. Kicking ass. And he ass. does those stunts, which is... Yeah, in, in Rogue Nation, he, he uh, maybe the craziest stunt he's done, he uh, is like strapped to the side, like on the outside of a plane, and it takes off. And they did eight takes. <laughs> and, and in the in the newest one, he does a a halo, like a, a, a jump, high altitude, whatever. Stand yeah, for. yeah. He's the apparently the first actor to ever do that type of uh, skydive. Um, and it's like what you see in the film is is definitely like there's CGI added, but he did the fucking jump. Man. Maybe we should all be Scientologists. <laughs> That's, what That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yes. That's exactly correct. That's exactly what I wanted you to get from my. So I have uh, some literature here movies. for you. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, yeah, I guess I guess that's all we got for Parasite for now. Um, I feel like this is going to be one of those films that we make reference back to a lot, sort of like First Reformed or uh, you know, Interstellar when we talk about space specifically um because it it's got a lot going on in it and you know we we talked about it for you know an hour and a half and that we could still add a lot of things on top of that 
Um, but we'll just kind of leave it there for now. <clears throat> and next week we are going to travel back in the past a little bit and do something a little bit less commercially successful. I'm assuming maybe this was big in, in the 70s. Uh, but from 1977, we're going to be watching The Last Wave, directed by Peter Weir, who's a an Australian director. Right. We talked. We talked about the Truman Show that uh, Peter Weir directed. So he's a not a first time anthropocener. Oh yeah, I didn't even catch that. But yeah, um, this movie from 1977. Uh, we decided to do it because uh, it was included in that um, double feature, sort of climate change double feature that Criterion put together. Uh, and we did Red Desert, right? So now this is the yeah. other part of it. Um, and that way we're sort of taking a cue from Criterion, but I feel okay doing that because, you know, we've endorsed Criterion a lot. So, yeah. So fuck off. Yeah. So kiss kiss our ass. That's what (laughs) you got. You got, you got drama. You better save it for your mama. My thoughts. Exactly. So yeah, we're next week. The last wave directed by Peter Weir. Until then, you should all go watch or rewatch Parasite. And Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, do that first. Watch Mission Impossible Fallout first. That's and like, Ad Astra. It's like eating dessert first. Yeah, and then watch Ad Astra. And then watch First Reformed. And then watch tried, all of I Clint tried, Eastwood's films. I tried to watch Gone with the Wind, but uh, the VHS I have was broken, which seemed... Uh, as Parasite would put it, so metaphorical. (laughs) See, we didn't even talk about that. So metaphorical. (laughs) Um, Anyway, yeah. Next week, last week.